AMU. American Military University is proud to present AMU Disaster Crew. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Glenn Koska, your host, and joining me today is Dr. Chris Reynolds, AMU's Dean and Vice President of Academic Outreach and Program Development. He is a certified emergency manager through IAEM, and his career in emergency and disaster management spans more than three decades and includes some on-the-ground responses to the Oklahoma City bombing, various major hurricanes over the years, including Hurricane Andrew and Hurricane Katrina, and various earthquake responses and recovery operations, including the Haitian earthquake in 2010. Dr. Reynolds, did I miss anything? <laughs> no, Glenn, I think you, you pretty much covered it all. Today we're going we're gonna to discuss the recent past, the present, and the future as we navigate through this bloody awful year that we've had so far to an ongoing disaster, a worldwide disaster, which of course is the coronavirus, which causes COVID-19. And uh, we're just about six months or so into COVID in the U.S. And, of course, there's been a lot of discussion among the talking heads on how the U.S. has handled the coronavirus. What is your take on it all? I mean, is it is it something that can actually be looked at from the highest level of government? I mean, there's a lot of people out there are saying uh, President Trump hasn't done enough. Well, I mean... Close to, what, 300-something million people, 50 states, all with 50 different governors. Can it be tackled at that highest level, or is it more boots on the ground for you? Well, you know, that's a really good question. First, I think we all have to come to terms with the realization that COVID-19 has been politicized on both the left and the right. And it's unfortunate that much of that political influence has influenced and has swayed you know, what the population and the public think about uh, COVID-19. I think the reality of COVID-19 is that there's no doubt that it's a pandemic, that there's no doubt that it has created fatalities uh, worldwide, as certainly within the United States as well, and that it requires, you know, people being proactive and using due diligence and care when being in the public. And, uh, you know, I think that we are on the downside I think that the uh, the science, the uh, Centers for Disease Control, as well as well as the National Health Institute of Health, has also said that you know that the infections are on the downside. They were slash are expecting a, a second wave, perhaps of, of infections. I think that in the six months that you know we've been impacted by COVID nineteen, that you know the uh, world's health community has come together and have uh, developed significant treatments to help uh, you know solve or rather cure or mitigate the, the symptoms of COVID-19. And I think that the population is likely better able to cope with it than they were, say, back in March when it first hit. You know, I think that in terms of alerting the public, I think that, you know, that was done appropriately and accurately. I think that uh, the resources were certainly put into play to deal with and mitigate it. I think, again, unfortunately, it's been politicized, and I think that, you know, the famous moniker of listen to the science should be followed. I think the science should drive what we're doing. And I think that we have to, as a country, come together and realize that life before COVID-19 is different than life is now. And this may very well be what it is into the future. 
I agree 100% with everything you just said. And in particular, it is life-changing, just the same way 9-11 changed our lives as far as the way we travel around the world. And of course, in so many other ways, it changed everybody's lives. This is going to be a case of a pre-COVID and a post-COVID world as well. And I agree with you. The science is there. And I'm personally outraged about the way the whole thing has been politicized. I mean, as you know, Chris, I'm from the UK, um, from across the pond. And I, I get, you know, I get regular updates, obviously, because my sister and my mother are still living over there. And um, my mother's in the, the high risk category, so to speak. I just see how the, the population reacts to this sort of thing in the UK compared to how the population reacted to it over here. And it's, there is no policy. I mean, there might be a little bit of politicizing it in other countries, but not much. I mean, they pretty much fall into line and do what they're told and listen to the scientists and listen to the leaders. And um, it is a real shame that that kind of thing didn't happen over here and that there are people on one side of or both sides of an argument that's related to a disease that has killed more than 200,000 people. It was an opportunity for the country to get together and it's kind of sad to me that 2020 it's really just divided the country even more. All we seem to hear about is President Trump did this, which was bad, and then someone else did this, which was terrible as well. And um, it seems like we've kind of lost focusing on the people who are suffering and more on the politics. Wouldn't you agree? I completely agree. And let me also add on to that. You know, I know that you're from the UK. My son-in-law, who's married, the gentleman who's married to my eldest daughter, is from Whitby, England, up in Yorkshire, in northern England. And he has parents that are in their 80s that are, of course, extremely susceptible to COVID. And cautions that they've taken over there have, particularly up in the Whitby area, up in Yorkshire and in in the northern part of England, much like it has been in London and other metro areas, is they're paying attention, you know, and they're following the rules. And uh, it it really, it, it is sad that we in this country don't realize that, you know, those rules really need to be followed. I mean, we all have civil liberties that we want to observe. You know, but one has to realize that civil liberties, you know, when it comes to a public health crisis, you know, civil liberties can sometimes be stopped or can be ceased. And we don't want to see that occur. That's why we want to see our, you know, our fellow citizens here do what's appropriate. Stay out of large gatherings without masks. Follow what the CDC guidelines are. Really, that's only the way they're going to remain safe and keep their families safe. And no one wants to bring COVID-19 home to an elderly family member. Nobody wants to go through that. And that's the thing that I kind of get a little bit upset with when I see people not following the guidelines. See, I live in a college town, so I've got lots of 18 to 22-year-olds walking around. And my town, the governor of New Hampshire and the town level stated uh, recently that mandatory masks uh, were to be used no matter where you are, if you're out in public. So walking down the street, you're supposed to wear one. And the point that you just brought up is what I'm getting at here is that just because you might think you're impervious at 18 years old, but you definitely could be carrying active virus. And of course, Durham, where I live, there's the demographics are you're either 18 to 22 because there's 10,000 college students or you're 65 and older. 
because there's a lot of older people that retire to this area of New Hampshire. And then you've got people like me in the middle. But mostly it's younger people and older people in this town. And of course, the younger people are walking around with no masks and coughing and sneezing and everything else. And, I, you know, I just kind of want to stop them and say, look, you look at this person over here. She's probably, what, 70 something? You know, I mean, do you understand that that this person over here could die because you just, you know, you're just strolling around town? And, of course, that brings up a whole different sort of topic of discussion. But it's just something that could have prevented a lot of deaths, in my opinion, if people were to follow what the CDC said and all of those guidelines, right? Yes, without a doubt. Without a doubt. You know, people just have to take a greater responsibility. And taking care of your, your family and yourself, it begins with that, which also extends to others. And putting people at risk is never, ever a good choice, ever. No, I agree. And of course, we're, we're talking about this is really just a primer for something terrible that might happen in the future, Chris, because as bad as COVID-19 has been, there are viruses that are out there waiting to happen that are 10 times more fatal, like an Ebola kind of hemorrhagic fever type of virus. What would happen if something like that hit the US? I mean, the protocols that we've seen for COVID, it must, I imagine we'll see those protocols on steroids, right? Well, I think that first we, we should all realize that in 2014, we actually had Ebola in the United States that, that some health practitioners brought back with them after helping and assisting at uh, medical centers in Africa where they had the horrific Ebola outbreak. And they were, of course, all put in isolates and put in isolation. And fortunately, I believe they all were cured, you know, of uh, Ebola. So we've already really had an Ebola experience here. In terms of preparedness and readiness, Health and Human Services, of course, would oversee that. The Surgeon General of the United States would be, you know, the uh, essentially the instant commander you know, in the executive policy group with the uh, with the president federally and state and locally, your health departments as well as your, your emergency management departments would be dealing with how to respond to and how to mitigate, how to take care of. Also on the federal side, you'd have FEMA that would be most involved in this. And through uh, health and human services disaster medical response teams, their DMAT teams would come in and assist. Uh, from the military, you would have uh, USAMRA, the United States Army's uh, Medical Incident Response Force, as well as uh, the uh, U.S. Marine Corps' Chemical and Biological Incident Response Force, or CBRF, and they would bring in federal help also. And it could even involve the Air Of course, it would involve the Air Force in terms of airlift, but the Air Force could also activate the Civilian Reserve Air Fleet, or CRAF it's called, that has the ability of turning airliners uh, essentially into flying hospitals or in flying ambulances to move patients to facilities that maybe are overwhelmed because so many folks are just, you know, overwhelming their capability and other healthcare facilities have to step in and help. So I think you would see a really true joint operation uh, that would work to mitigate or to reverse, God forbid, we had a uh, hemorrhagic fever pandemic outbreak in the United States. I'm Glenn Kosker. My guest today is Dr. Christopher Reynolds, and we'll be right back. To handle massive damage from natural and man-made disasters, today's first responders need specialized training. Get started down your next training path in emergency and disaster management with a degree from American Military University. You'll learn from highly experienced practitioners in the field. Take the next step and apply today at amuonline.com. Welcome back to the podcast. I'm talking to Dr. Christopher Reynolds. 
So let's jump right back into our discussion. One thing that you and I have discussed in the past, which I'll be honest, it did kind of scare the, you know, bejesus out of me a little bit, um, is the electromagnetic pulse scenario. Now, not everybody, not all of our audience will know what an electromagnetic pulse or an EMP is. So, and there are natural versions of these things, and they're, of course, man-made things. So, Chris, why don't you tell our audience a little bit about EMPs and what they're capable of? Well, for simply an EMP is just a, a rush of energy or a large magnetic field that, uh, that can come in and create problems with electronics. Uh, essentially, it's a short surge of electromagnetic energy, and its short duration essentially means it will spread over a range of frequencies. So there are frequencies within the spectrum that are visible that you, one can listen to, one can't see. There's their infrared spectrum. But what an EMP does, our elect electromagnetic pulses, it fires this short-term large mass energy, and it causes a disruption. And it can stop essentially anything that's electronic. Electronic ignition in your car, your, uh, your telephone, your homes, the electrical grid, the banking grid. An EMP pulse could create mass devastation across the country, if not just, you know, across the world. You know, and how one prepares for that? Well, there are certain things that, you know, that organizations or even the federal government has where they harden their electronics behind lead or behind other materials that will protect it from an EMP pulse. You know, but most of us don't have those luxuries. And a scenario could be you're driving down the highway and EMP is, uh, is released. And because it's been released, the electronics on your car shut off. You, you, your car stops right there. You lose everything. The capability of driving the car. Of course, if you've got an electric vehicle, it's even worse for you. EMPs can come from a solar burst from the sun. An EMP wave can hit. A coronal mass ejection factor, there, there are cases where that has occurred, and it's wiped out satellites, you know, GPS satellites, and it's wiped out some communication satellites. And the Sun Observatory that is operated by the federal government keeps an eye on those sunspots to make sure, you know, there's ample warning time for a, uh, a coronal mass ejection. But even if you're warned, you know, you really, you know, what does one do? Really, there's not much of a defense against it. And, you know, in the worst case scenario, you can see aircraft falling from the sky. You can see all kinds of horrific things from an EMP. And as a weapon, that's, you know, something else that we have to be concerned about. You know, we concern ourselves, do terrorists have access to EMP devices? When we're talking about man-made EMPs that could come in the form of a terror attack from North Korea, which has already said that they, you know, how much can you believe coming out of North Korea? But they have said that they have the capability of doing such a thing. And I guess the way it would work, Chris, and correct me if I'm wrong, is that there would be some sort of high-altitude major electromagnetic pulse, perhaps from a nuclear device exploding, but not sort of, you know, near the surface of the U.S., but above it. And as you say, you know, you mentioned how the satellites can go down. Well, it did happen in the 80s, I think, in uh, Canada when such a thing did happen. And yeah, the satellites went down. There was a little bit of stoppage of certain things. But nowadays, look how much we rely on the internet and email and cars, of course, and GPS and satellites that control everything from banking to hospitals to it's basically everything. It would be like reverting to, I don't know, 1820 or something, you know, where there was nothing, right? And so tell us more about what would happen 
if, for instance, North Korea or a rogue actor got a hold of something that could cause this sort of event to happen, I mean, surely there are some proactive measures in place right now to prevent such a thing. Yeah, there are. I mean, you know, the scenario you brought up about, uh, you know, high altitude nuclear detonation. I mean, that that is the uh, typical EMP, you know, man-made type of an EMP that would occur. Uh, you know, and what happens again, realizing that a nuclear weapon, no matter where it's exploded, certainly is a problem, you know, but a, a nuclear weapon that, that would be air detonated, say, over an East Coast city wouldn't necessarily have a direct impact on a West Coast city. So there would still be some communications. But the strategic nature of those type of, of weapons is to make the detonation, you know, where it's over, you know, maybe, uh, you know, the New York Stock Exchange or it's over, you know, one of the big, uh, you know, trunking and networking cell phone carriers around the country that would have a great impact nationwide. One thing that EMP does is that it ejects the massive amounts of gamma rays. And of course, the gamma ray is the one that goes through you and can kill you and cause cellular damage. You know, so there's a secondary effect to an EMP burst. In terms of what it would do across the country, I mean, we, we are also used to our handheld devices, you know, instant news, instant everything, convenience of a refrigerator, getting in our car and going someplace, turning the, the television or the radio on. If we lost all that, you know, certainly that would have an impact societally. In terms of defense, yes, we are, in the United States, I think, is pretty well defended through NORAD, uh, the North American Aerospace Defense Command, to deal with uh, EMP threats from hostile nations. But still, it's not something we want to see ever occur. No, we don't. And of course, I don't want to spook out our audience uh, too much. But the natural form that we mentioned earlier, the uh, solar flares, the coronal mass ejections, they can happen. There was a huge one that occurred in the 1850s called the Carrington Event that at the time, the only sort of electrical communications that the world had was telegraph. And it took that out. If something like that of that magnitude was to come from the sun now, it would be devastating. But going back to, uh, you know, a man-made EMP or a terror attack, of course, the, the goal of the terrorists then would be not to destroy people all at once, as they would in a, you know, a horrible bombing attack or something of that nature, or obviously 9-11, of course, that, that type of terror attack. It would be, it'll just sort of make everybody kill each other, in effect, because I can't imagine the mass hysteria and breakdown of society that would happen. If all the cars stopped working, all the stores stopped, all the all the restaurants closed, the internet was down forever, telephones were down forever. I mean, am I right in saying that that's the danger? The danger is societal breakdown, right? I think you're absolutely right. You can look at popular culture and, and see the impact, you know, whether it's the zombie attack, you know, or the TV series that are that have been on for years that's very popular that shows the end of the world scenarios. You know, I think that uh, that sticks in people's minds. Coronal mass ejection to the extent, like you mentioned about the 1800s ejection that occurred that burned up all telegraphs across the world, you know, and they were just in their infancy back then as well. That type of an event now would have worldwide implications. I mean, we have, you know, both the, you know, the Aurora Borealis and the Royal Australis, you know, the Northern and Southern Lights, which shows essentially the sun's activity and its impact of those electromagnetic waves against you know our electrogravity field and our, our own electromagnetivity of our planet a coronal mass ejection that came in through the poles could certainly impact worldwide without any question the impact on society devastating yes i think as a 
as a world, I think that you would see, uh, I don't think rioting is the right word, but I think you would see people trying to fend for themselves. Definitely would. Um, thankfully, though, as we mentioned earlier, there is some there are some proactive measures. I think that mostly on a state level, though, a lot of states in the U.S. are sort of preparing the national grid system for such an event. And that's the one thing that we haven't mentioned, of course, the power grid. The power grid would go down. It would go down everywhere. I mean, it wouldn't be just like you a blackout or a power cut or whatever. It would just be down for weeks or months even. And uh, some some jurisdictions are taking uh, measures to prepare for such a thing, but uh, some aren't. And I suppose that's the worrying part. Well, the shielding is really important. You know, and, and some of the things that can be done, it's already been done to some degree with some uh, contracts that are written for the federal government to assure that there's adequate shielding you know, prevent an EMP from destroying a device or destroying a network. And as you said, our nation's power grid is a patchwork of power lines and substations, you know, going back almost 100 years. Absolutely. Well, again, let's hope. This is sort of a depressing podcast so far, but but <laughs> but at the same time, it's very important to get these facts out there because, you know, as you said earlier, one of the pillars of emergency management, of course, is preparedness. And these are bad things that we should all be prepared for. I mean, we shouldn't be reacting to these things. We should be prepared for them. We're going to be talking about a post-COVID world, but hopefully we can learn a lot from the present COVID world so that the post-COVID world is better and we're prepared and it won't be a disastrous time period in history. It'll be something that, hey, we've learned from this disaster, this catastrophe and we are making ourselves and our communities better prepared for such things to happen in the future. Would you agree? Oh, completely. Absolutely, completely, Glenn. I think that you, you know, you encapsulated that very well. It is going to be definitely a post-COVID-19 world once we are through this pandemic, once we get the vaccinations developed and we get the population vaccinated. You have to look at it. It will. And to be honest with you, I think all of these signs that are on the floor, wherever you go, which says keep six feet apart and wash your hands and having hand sanitizer everywhere and covering your cough and all of these things, hopefully they'll just be permanent because why, why wouldn't they be? If anything, it would prevent the flu every flu season and it would prevent people getting sick. Forget about COVID-19 and the coronavirus. These are just basic steps. So I hope that all of these signs that are on the floor of stores and buildings are permanent. And why wouldn't they be? I'm sure that would be a hard thing for people to follow in the future, but at least it could be something that is optional and hopefully most people would take that option to be diligent and do the social distancing even when there is no pandemic because it can prevent there are 40,000 usually an average of 40,000 flu deaths every flu season and by employing the same social distancing and protocols that we're doing right now in the future maybe that flu number could be 10,000 instead of 40,000. Sure it could and you know, look back in our childhoods you know I should say you know, in the United States, you know, I remember back in the early 60s, duck and cover drills, you know, in the elementary school, you know, for nuclear attack. You know, what you ask a, a child today or a young adult today, what does duck and cover mean? They have no clue. They have no context. COVID-19 is a game changer. If you ask the children, you know, 20 years from now, what's COVID-19? What is social distancing? They're going to be able to tell you instantly what it is because their parents or their grandparents have lived through it. Like I said, this is this is life changing. 
It is. Okay, Chris, I think we have scared our audience sufficiently. Well, I'm being too light with this, but it's been a very interesting discussion that we've had here today. Dr. Christopher Reynolds was my guest. Chris, I want to thank you for all of your expert advice that you have given our audience today, and I hope that we can get you on a future podcast. Perhaps we can talk about a few more uh, less horrific things. Uh, maybe we could get on to uh, a different type of topic. But for now, I'd like to thank you very much for being my guest today. Thank you so much, Glenn. I appreciate the opportunity, and I look forward to working and chatting with you going forward. Thank you for joining us today. I'm Glenn Kosker. Join us again on a future episode. Thank you. For more information about our university, visit us at amuonline.com. Thank you for listening. AMU, American Military University.